Hello and welcome back to Finding Your Niche. In today's episode, I shared a conversation with Chris Joyce, the founder and CEO of Gusher. And by the way, it's a pretty cool platform. So if you're interested in startups and how that whole world works, I'd give it a give it a look. Um, and, and in this episode, I had a conversation with him. I really did. Um, no, I had an interview with Chris. And it was a super dense, value-packed conversation that was centered around entrepreneurship and some of the takes that he had on it and a lot of the questions that I had. So I hope you enjoy. All right, Chris, let's do this. We're live. We're going after it. We're not actually live. We're recording, but uh, I'm going to call it live because we're having a conversation right now and and we're getting after it. Um, Chris Joyce with me today. Chris, uh, what I want to do is give you the opportunity to introduce yourself I'm sure a little bit about who you are and what you're up to. Sure. I'm Chris Joyce. I'm founder and CEO of Gusher. Uh, Gusher is a platform to launch companies without the need for capital. We've got a couple hundred portfolio companies with founders across the globe. Uh, My background, I've started a hell of a lot of companies in all different verticals, ranging from manufacturing to software to consumer goods to medical devices. My products have been sold in more than 23 countries across the globe, and I've got users of my tech products in more than 148 countries as of now. So a lot of different products, a lot of different types of companies across the board. Cool. What was the first company that you started? Well, if you want to go really back, I, I mean, do. I do. Want to go to like, like when I'm six years old, Jake? Yes, 100%. Sure. Uh, when I was six years old, and you know, and I don't know if they're still there right now, but at the time in comic books, there were certain little business opportunities in the back, and there was something for burpee seeds. I remember it to this day, a little thing that you sent them five bucks, and they sent you this whole box of seeds that you would take door to door and go selling. And so at the time, I lived on an Air Force base, and I'm sure my parents helped me go ahead and send that stuff in and everything else. Uh, but I remember getting the box of seeds and going door to door selling <laughs> seeds as a you kid. selling magic beans. Selling, yeah, well, it's like everything. Like you'd have your vegetables, your flowers, whatever the hell it is, you know, and people would give a, a six-year-old money. So it was awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. So you've, you've been a an entrepreneur your entire life then. Exactly. Um, from what I can tell. Um, so you started off, I'm not going to call them magic beans. You started off <laughs> selling seeds from the back of comic books. When did you really hit your stride with a business that you knew you could do it full time and that it was going to be successful and, and be the thing you worked on? Well, it, it was really funny. In college, one of the things I ran across is there was something called audio text. Audio text at the time is what was called basically these voice recorded messages. So you'd have voice recorded content, okay? Uh, right at the time as the internet was kind of just starting to take off, but it really hadn't exploded at the time. So you had these certain types of pay-per-call numbers and everything else where you'd call, get information, you'd pay X dollars per minute or X dollars per call. And we had a business where literally we walked around putting flyers on cars and in one month we did 50 grand and so that was during that was during college and so it was during college that I concluded well all right here I am making a hell of a lot more per month uh, than basically they're teaching you how to go ahead and make as a middle (laughs) manager in business school Mm -hmm. and I was Mm -hmm. off to the races you know 
Yeah. So, so what, what exactly did that business do is audio to text. So did you, it was called audio text. So, so think of it this way. All right. Uh, you went ahead and had it where, uh, maybe it was horoscopes or maybe it was dating lines, that type of stuff. And we would do revenue shares with newspapers and that type of thing to have advertising in the back of them. And we would split the revenues and it would just go ahead and grow when we started growing. So instead of it being like match.com right now or eHarmony or, or whatever the hell it may be, Tinder, uh, uh, in terms of recent stuff, back then you had like those types of ads in newspapers. So with audio text, you'd have it where you'd call up and you would go ahead and be charged per minute and you would hear the ads for whatever it may be. It could be anything. It could be real estate uh, for different listings. It could be um, really any type of information whatsoever. And so we started creating content initially, but then we scaled to something called Audio Tech Service Bureau, where we actually went ahead and had the, uh, the hardware and the locations uh, that enabled other people to go into business. And that scaled insanely rapidly. That was a really rapid growing company. Interesting. And how many people were working on it with you? Uh, at that time, it was myself and my brother. That's, that's how we started out. And he was a physicist out at Cal Berkeley. So it doesn't hurt to have a really smart brother. <laughs> so in there, I mean, you, you mentioned <laughs> you walked around, you put flyers on cars in the first yep. month, you did 50 grand. At that point, I mean, you had to have known like this is... There's, there's no reason to do anything else. Oh, yeah. It just started taking off. But I, Did you I mean, leave college? I did leave college. I left college in year three. Uh, at the time, I was studying Austrian economics and finance at NYU, at NYU's business school. And I, and I went there and I, you know, for a really specific purpose. I went to study under Israel Kirzner. I achieved that. Uh, but at the same time, when you're generating that type of cash flow, it makes sense not to do college for what I was doing. So I don't advocate leaving college unless you have something that is working in some way that enables you to go ahead and do that because I never got the full college experience, you know. So for a lot of people, that's a great thing. For me, it wasn't a fit from the beginning. I, I literally never attended classes. I just attended finals and it would ace them and that's what I would do. Uh, the college experience really wasn't for me from almost the very beginning. Let's unpack that a bit. So were you sure. just naturally gifted at school? Um, my wife thinks I'm autistic. A couple other people do too. I don't see it. All right. I make certain eye contact and everything else. Uh, but what, there's a term for it. I can't remember. But, you know, I would be the type of person that I'd read a book and I wouldn't put it down until I had it done. So with something like accounting, you know, I would knock out an accounting course in a weekend. I wouldn't sit there and take the whole semester learning. I would just knock it out. And it wasn't something that, you know, is, is, I don't think, maybe it's a natural ability, I'm not quite sure, or maybe it's an obsessive compulsive thing, I'm not sure. Uh, but to this day, I don't pick up books and put them down. I go ahead and knock it out in one shot. You read an entire book in one go. Have to. It's a weird thing, yeah. Interesting. Cool. Um, so going, off, going back to the college thing, sure. um, I know there's – a lot of people that are idolized for leaving college. I mean, you say that, that, that idolize, I, I lost the last part. There's a lot of people that are, not a lot of people, but there are certain people that are idolized for having left their universities and gone on sure. to do really good things. Um, for example, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, um, those kind of guys that are just extreme yes. examples. But what advice would you give to a college student that is thinking through like whether or not it's right for them to stay in college or leave? I think it's the following, really. You know, it always comes down to this one word, almost in a way, passion. And I think that at that age, there's a certain fundamental mistake that's made with passion. 
let me explain, okay? So you're in college, you know? Oh, if you don't feel passionate about college, you should be off finding whatever it is that makes you tick and makes your whole life fulfilling. I'm not anti-college at all. I mean, my wife is a doctor of psychology. She's got so many damn degrees, it's pathetic. But the issue is, I guess, with it is the question of which comes first, the work or the passion. You know, I've always been passionate about ideas, about creating stuff from the very beginning. So it wasn't that I was, let's say, looking for a way to get out of college. It's just that suddenly those ideas started to monetize in a much larger scale. And so therefore, what I went there to learn and do, I did. And it just wasn't it wasn't worth the time anymore. For most people, you know, taking the leap and figuring that out is usually a huge growth curve uh, that has to be tackled at that stage. It can be scary. It's safe in many ways to go ahead and get that college degree or, or it's something that acts as an insurance policy in many people's eyes. But for an entrepreneur, if you're talking about a true entrepreneur, it, it serves almost absolutely no purpose whatsoever. Anything that they typically teach you in college, unless it is specifically an entrepreneurial program, doesn't relate. MBA type of scenario doesn't relate. Standard finance doesn't relate. Macroeconomics, microeconomics, it doesn't relate to what's doing. You know, the fact of the matter is they should be teaching courses on how to deal and live with fear and trauma and how to ride a roller coaster emotionally uh, and having the wherewithal to stay on that ride. And that's usually the one skill that you can learn and you can develop a muscle for it that isn't taught. And that's usually the fundamental difference between success and failure. It's not having some awesome idea that takes off right off the bat. You know, even Bill Gates, you know, they were sitting around for three, four years with a traffic system that basically wasn't going anywhere. Uh, and they ended up buying DOS uh, and doing a contract arbitrage deal to get Microsoft out of the gates. You know, he would allow the game, literally. I mean, it wasn't something that they were writing that code from the ground up. It was an arbitrage purchase deal that enabled them to do it. You know, Buffett himself, you know, they didn't create Berkshire Hathaway. They went ahead and bought a shell, did a reverse merger, pumped capital into it, and then they were off to the races. None of them started anything. You know, Zuckerberg, even if you take a look at it, uh, the path itself was already crafted and created uh, when you were looking at other social networks. And what ended up happening was it was a simplification in the right timing. So the last thing you want to do is go ahead and hold yourself up to these one-off deals that basically may not relate to your experience and your experience set. And, you know, I always say stop trying to model yourself uh, off of these other people. You yourself in your own DNA is the one thing that nobody can compete against. Nobody has your DNA. Nobody has your, your experience and set of life experiences in the exact way that you have. And so utilize that fully. And that's what most people should be concentrating on. Knowing that, what, what can people do to recognize what makes their DNA or their skills mindset differentiated? And what, what, what can they do to target that towards a business and make it successful? I, I think it depends on the person. I mean, there are people that, that perhaps, you know, you may consider the dreamers that they have a certain type of idea that people are always like knocking down. Uh, those people are typically phenomenal at getting stuff started. You have the quiet people, the introverts that never speak up for their ideas. And when they find a methodology and an outlet, those are the ones that a lot of times take off. You know, it's not the, 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 
personable people that necessarily go ahead and make stuff happen. It's the people that have something in their core with an idea that it can't let go of. And that's usually the indicator of how to go about it. So meaning that you don't sit there and say, oh, well, I'm going to go ahead and be an entrepreneur. Yes, you can go about it that way. And most times it's not going to work. Most times it's a question of what pain are you experiencing at what point in your life or what pain points are you seeing? And is there a solution there? Is there something that you're thinking about that doesn't let go? You know, a person may be in extreme poverty in a scenario. And many times that can be the greatest gift in the world because it teaches you things that perhaps somebody in a middle class family or an upper upper class family won't experience and vice versa. You know, somebody in a middle class family deals with much different issues, let's say on a day to day basis, that those problems, the things that you're experiencing on a day to day basis, that's the fuel, that's the raw material uh, for good shit when it comes to business. And most people keep looking towards like exterior problems and trying to identify markets and everything else. And almost always that's a path to like a black hole research type of deal that nothing ever happens. If you visit your own pain points, you dig deep on yourself, usually that's the stuff that ends up something great coming from, you know? Yeah. And I, I was thinking about that. I was, I can't remember if I was walking or driving or I was moving somewhere today. Yeah. And I was, I was thinking about entrepreneurship because I knew we were having our conversation and um, there, I was just thinking about it. And there's a lot of people that come into it with, with a lot of sophistication and they want to, like do things the right way. And I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong about it, but they want to do things the right way. They want to go about it in a way that they can collect their market research, get all this data, analyze it, understand the process, um, figure out what they can do better. And then, then try to see if there's a market for it. Yep. But then like one thing I noticed just from the, the, the few conversations that we've had, Chris, is that you just send it. And, right. and, and you, you may bring a level of sophistication um, from your experience, but uh, I just, I'm just conflicted in my own head about whether or not you actually need that level of sophistication. Because I know several people that are um, not typically, like, I wouldn't consider them sophisticated, but they have very, very successful companies yep. um, and they execute really, really well. So I, I don't know if that's something that you've noticed as well, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Well, let's cover a couple things because you did some things there and covered a wide spectrum. On the most simple scale, let me give you an example of what I think is the best technique to start a business. All right. Okay. I've got a six-year-old who at the time was five years old. All right. And I came home one day and it was around, I want to say three or four o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday. All right. And he's sitting out front in the curb on the curb of my house. You know, where the road is we're in a quiet, you know, kind of suburban type of neighborhood. And he's got a table there. And I came up to him and I'm like, what are you doing? All right. And he goes, oh, I'm selling these. I go, selling what? He goes, oh, well, I made these sand molds and I'm selling them. You know, he has a little mold that you put sand in and you put them on his table. Now, he started out with the sand mold and a table, and that's it, with no traffic, nothing going on, five years old at the time, okay? And this is what happens. I go inside, all right, and I say to my wife, I'm like, you got five bucks? She's like, why? I go, well, I never have cash, and we have a kid out front that's selling stuff, and I want to go make him feel good, right? So I go out thinking I'm doing this kid a favor, and I go buy his first sand thing for a buck. He's selling them for a buck or a three for $2, whatever the hell it is. 
a little sophisticated on that side, all right? Talk about so, arbitrage. Right, exactly. So hear me <laughs> out on this. So he's sitting there, and I'm thinking, this kid's dead in the water. It wasn't a Friday. It was a Saturday, Saturday afternoon, you know, going almost into, into early evening. I'm like, there's no traffic here, right? Sure enough, somebody's jogging, stops, buys one of the damn things, right? <laughs> Before you know it, a neighbor comes up, buys one of the damn things, the kids, my other sons, the older ones, and nine, uh, eight and uh, 11 at the time, went ahead and, and were basically like sharks and smelled chum in the water. And what do they do? They instantly bring a sign out. They instantly make a whole signage for it. They bring out some other products in there. Chairs. As people are coming now by, they start waving them in. So it starts pulling in people and more and more people and more and more stuff. And before you know it, those little efforts made close to 40 bucks in a period of an hour or two on a Saturday afternoon, I want to say, with nothing but sand. They sold sand, okay? And so that right there, I think, literally is everything you need to know as an entrepreneur. Number one, he had an idea, all right? Number two, he created the product. Number three, he just did it, okay? He didn't know how to do it. He utilized the tools that he had where he was at the time it was. He didn't try to make it the perfect time, the perfect product, the perfect location, the perfect everything. He used what he had at that moment in time and did it. Now, the second he started it, it brought in, I started it with the momentum of the first sale. We have a saying at Gusher that one plus one is done, meaning that you get one person on your team, the whole damn deal is done. But it also applies to sales. You get one sale, meaning that model is almost in a way completely validated. He got that sale. It was validated in his mind. Now, is a five-year-old thinking that way? No, he's thinking, I got a couple bucks. I want more bucks, all right, <laughs> to go buy cookies or whatever it may be. The brothers saw the money being made. Now you've got proven model. Other people come into your team when you need it. They appear magically, and now stuff starts escalating and scaling on its own organically without trying to have everything perfect. Now, does this apply to something that's a very sophisticated business model, trying to take on an incremental vertical in something that's a red ocean? No. But can it? Yeah, actually, it could. Because what he did is he put sales at the forefront. And that's the problem that most people don't do. They don't put the sale from the very beginning. You don't even need a damn product. Put up a website, uh, create a, a, a one-pager, and send it off to buyers and see what happens. Contact influencers to see what the, what the kickback or response is on them. You don't even need a product to determine sales validation. You just need the idea. Interesting. I just, one thing that I, I, I just questioned my entire life right there, but uh, <laughs> there, there's so many things that you, you can throw a bunch of like fancy words at them and um, call them something different than what they actually are. But at the end of the day, it, it's just dollars and cents. And I feel like there's so many things that like me specifically overcomplicate and so many other people overcomplicate. Um, and it's just totally unnecessary. Perfection is like, death. It's death, Jake. Perfection is death. I Think about it again. How did you learn how to ride a bike? I mean, if you were right now trying to learn how to ride a bike, this is what you would do, okay? You try to get the perfect sized bike. You would try to get to make sure that you're not right. going to get injured. You would watch right. videos on how to ride a bike. You That's would talk true. to people about bike, right? But guess what? A kid just gets on a bike and rides it. Yeah. We knew everything we needed to know at that time for starting a business. 
That's all you got to do is just do it. And your learning curve on this stuff, like, yes, I talk from experience on a lot of different things, but I didn't have that experience at the time I was doing this stuff. It's something that came rapidly, you know, for, for sticking flyers. I remember it to this day on the cars in, in the boroughs in New York, we had an argument of a vicious argument over the color of paper. You know, that was whether or not it should be this bright yellow or this other green and which had best visual, that versus, let's say, construction orange. And we didn't know, you know, but that's the stuff that we, we cared about it. So I think it's a function of caring and just doing, just doing. Mm -hmm. Now, this is, this might be too deep of a question right now, but why, why do we do this? Like people like you and me, like why, it's something that I've been thinking about quite a bit. Um, and I'm, I'm constantly just drawn towards these creative things and sure. doing things that not a lot of people are doing. Um, I'm just wondering from your experience so far, why, why do we do what we do? Here's the thing. I, I think that a certain portion of the people are literally wired to create and make in like their own vision. And I don't think it's everybody. I think a lot of people are either, you know, shoved it down so much as a kid or whatever it may be. But all I know is this, as kids, we made stuff. As kids, we took risk. Everybody did. So I don't know if it's just that, okay, it's like salmon swimming up the stream where enough of it wasn't beaten out of you uh, at an early age that some of it survived and now you're there and you're able to spawn and make those ideas or you're just wired for it genetically in DNA. And I think there may be something to that. Oh, I don't, I don't like to say that. And the reason I don't like to say that is I've been in conversations with people across all walks of life, all ages, all ethnicities, groups, religions, countries, you name it, in all different levels of, of socioeconomic status. And I, I ask them one thing, usually. I start the conversation. I'm like, if you were going to start a business, what would you start? And almost every last one of them had something on the tip of their tongue. So I don't know if it's a question of really just that people push it down because of fear or what the world's done to them in a certain way, or is it certain people are genetically wired? I don't know, you know? Yeah, I, I, I think I could ask literally every single one of my friends that I know if they could start a business, what would it be? And they would all have an answer. Exactly, right. And so then why, the next question, which I always say why, is- Why not? Right, right, why not? And that's the difference. That's the difference. You know, that's the everything though. That's the, because what ends up happening is, okay, I don't know if it's a question of self, you know, judgment on it that, oh my God, if I do this and my idea fails, does it mean I fail and my self-importance is coming from the success of the idea, which a lot of entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs end up doing, you know, people who don't execute. They're afraid that their baby's going to be ugly and they don't want to be judged on it. You know, I think that's a, that's a learned response. You know, that's something you learn from, from maybe having a, a crappy ass uh, bunch of people around you as you're growing up. I don't know. Hmm. Interesting. How, how do you. Just by the way, for, for clear one, one thing though, I never had encouragement as a child. I had the opposite. All right. So I came up with ideas and they were shit on and I got angry at it because I said, all right, well, no, that's not the case. And so I stuck with my guns and, and went through it my way. So maybe it is certain people, maybe it's wired. I'm not trying to hold that out there as a thing, but it doesn't mean that, oh, you're getting all the support from your parents and everything is unicorns and, you know, gold stars and that that works. Some people are, are wired the opposite. Some people need pushback. Mm. So two questions then coming sure. off of that. 
wow, that, that last point was really interesting because it goes into this other question. Um, one is how do you personally, or what have you seen in other people that they've done to manage that, that fear of whether it be failure or disappointment or um, the baby looking ugly? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I'll, you know, I'll pause, I'll pause. I'll let you answer that one first. Well, here's the thing that I've seen. All right. First of all, I don't think the fear ever goes away. All right. It, it's kind of like you either get kind of used to it or you don't. And I say that because- Have you gotten used to it, Chris? I, I do, but here's the one thing. Like, let me give you a quick example. Before I ever do anything with public speaking, literally, no matter what group I'm talking to or how much success or whatever it may be, right before I step on that stage and talk, I feel like running out of that room screaming, okay? It just did as far away as possible. But I've learned to say to myself, hey, this is good energy. This is your body actually fueling it. And so you take that almost in a way that that flea mechanism and turn it. So is that kind of like the, the crap mechanism that you're talking about of being fear? It's fear in a certain way. But with my ideas, I always say the following, I'm going to make it happen come hell or high water. So it doesn't matter if somebody tells me, oh, it's not going to work. The more that people tell me something's not going to work, I'm almost always certain that that's actually a green flag that I'm onto something. It's when everybody says, oh, well, that's brilliant and whatever else those are almost always the ideas that never work it's the ones that people say i'm not a chance in hell those are the ones that typically end up working for me interesting that's super interesting it's kind of counterintuitive actually it's very counterintuitive it is right i know but it's weird how that works um the other question it comes from that last point that you made about um, people being wired differently and things different people are motivated in different ways. Like when you were just, when, when someone tried to put you down or discourage your idea that actually made you buy into the idea more and more and more. Exactly. Um, so my question for you is what can we do um, as individuals in the world to inspire people around us to finally take that jump or do the thing that they, they actually want to do, whether it be start a business or stop running a business that is not, going so well and find a job somewhere else or be a doctor what, what can we do to inspire people to do what they actually want to do instead of what they're supposed to do or what they think they should do that's a rough one because i've got a certain deal rule that says you never pull people up mountains all right the reason is you can't pull them up a mountain it's something that they have to almost in a way conclude themselves or not but having said that you know the one thing that i've always tried to do is lead by example so you lead by example, you show what's involved, uh, you get them where even taking the first step usually is all it takes. You know, on our side with entrepreneurs, we don't pull people like into gusher trying to make them do it because that's the kiss of death. You'll end up pulling them up the mountain the entire time. But we have seen where people have different for lack of a better word, buy cycles. So once they realize, oh my God, there isn't a barrier necessarily to starting something, that's a huge fear for many people because they're like, my God, my idea can suddenly become you know, concrete almost in a way overnight. And we see different people go ahead and ferment at different rates. Some take a month, some take three months, some take nine months, some take two years to go ahead and be able to conclude that and go ahead and start viewing themselves that way. So I think it's an evolutionary process for a lot of people mm -hmm. because suddenly you know, they're, they're under the guise of a certain belief structure that maybe they have to know everything. And you know, entrepreneurship, I think, is just the exact opposite. The founders that we've seen that are the most successful are the ones that fundamentally say openly to their team when they don't know something that they don't know it 
So usually the most honest, open people from our side of it are the best entrepreneurs, not the bullshitters. Uh, the ones that aren't necessarily uh, trying to hide down that they're fearful or they don't have an answer to something. Because when you don't have an answer to something and you ask for help, guess what people do? Help you. Exactly. That, that's the key. You know, it's the people that are like, oh my God, I have to have everything figured out on this road. No, you just have to take a step. And then as crazy as it may sound, that whole, you know, leap in the net will appear. Well, if you walk, the road appears. That's all it is. It's not even leaping. It's just walking. Sometimes it's crawling. Sometimes it's, you know, breathing with the wind at your back and taking a second to catch your breath. Sometimes it's fighting viciously. Other times it's hitting your head against the wall until the wall moves. It's a ton of different processes. It's not just one or. It, it, it truly is a journey, Jake. I mean, it's a journey. It's not bunk. It's a journey. Interesting. And that's what makes yeah. it fun. <laughs> and that's what makes us kind of crazy too, I guess. Exactly. In, in a weird way. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, I, I had a question, it just flew to me, but one thing I, I, I do want to ask you about is um, your time and how you manage your time. Um, yep. I, know, I know you have a lot of things that are going on. Um, and as you mentioned, with uh, if you read a book, you just sit down and, and you read the entire book. Yep. Um, I do my schedule a little bit differently and I block time off in advance. Yep. And so my days are literally filled every single day of every single week. And I know there's certain people that do it that way. And then there's also a subset of people that are completely radicalized in the other direction where they will do like a maximum of one meeting per week right. that's scheduled with their team. So, I'm curious to hear like what, what you found has been most effective for you in terms of managing your time and um, keeping control of your schedule. Well, first of all, you know, I, I think that managing one's time is really a, a personal thing, meaning that I don't think it's necessarily one thing or another. I think that certain people are wired in different ways as to what works for them. Having said that, you know, the different methodologies that you just mentioned, whether it's blocking time, uh, going ahead and filling it up, let's say haphazard, go ahead and fill and reducing it to the ridiculous. I've done them all. It doesn't necessarily work for me. What I've always done is typically kept a pad next to me. All right. On this pad, I simply list the priorities and I start knocking them out, whatever those priorities are in terms of importance. And that's it. When I get to the bottom of the page, I start another page of priorities and I just keep doing that. And that's usually the best thing that works for me is something that I can take action on. I hate stuff that's longer term oriented, although I am a fundamental uh, planner, meaning that before I ever do any type of business, I fundamentally uh, blow it out and create it and create very, very deep detailed plans, although basically they're never showed to anyone. So if I create like a business plan, it's 80, 90 pages of, of really detailed stuff in terms of the thought process. But the execution is fundamentally different. I, I treat it very, very linear in terms of on my side, and I just start listing whatever needs to be done in order of importance, and I just knock it out. I keep it simple in that respect. It's not a function of meetings or filling up the time. It's whatever is priority takes precedence. Interesting. So really the business plans in your head at that point you're just executing on it is that be correct yeah the, the business plan really is usually just a fundamental exercise to go ahead and run numbers because I started business plans at a really early age and so it's just always stuck with me that I feel like I need to go ahead and do it so you know when I was 15 16 I used to go to score meetings in Cincinnati 
uh, senior core retired executives, and they have a certain methodology of business plans that to this day just has stuck with me. It's something that like, you know, from the time I was a kid, I just did really complete business plans a certain way. So I do it as an exercise, uh, but even like right now, I can see businesses and know typically what template or pattern they're going to fit, and so it's pretty easy to see once you've done enough of them. Interesting. So again, on the, the timing question, yeah. what, in your list of priorities, um, when time-sensitive things come up, it, I, I've been getting really curious about time sensitivity the last few weeks here because there's a lot of things in my schedule, like something needs to be like sent out on Monday, another thing needs to be done by Tuesday, certain things need to be launched by Wednesday, another thing needs to be launched by Thursday. So my entire week is in preparation of those things. Like I, I need to get this done by this time, but there's also this entire list of other things that I should be working on a need to do for the long term. Right. They just get eaten up by the short term, like deadlines that need to get completed. Um, how, how do you overcome that? And what, what, what advice do you have on that front? I, I think it comes down to trying not to be God. I mean, the fact of the matter is you've got a certain amount of hours in the day. And the question is, what's the big stuff? The big stuff is all that you should be doing at a certain stage. In the beginning stage, if you're solo on it, you have to do everything. It's just the way that it is. But the whole point of it is that you shouldn't be doing everything all yourself, at least from an entrepreneurial standpoint, assuming that's what we're talking about, uh, still yourself for a longer period of time. It's a stepping stone. So the whole point of an entrepreneur, if you're starting out solo, is, yeah, you have to do everything and run around like a chicken with your head cut off in the very beginning stages, but that's for a period of time. It shouldn't be the end game. It shouldn't be the end all. And so the whole point is now you get to the next level, and either it's a function of getting the machinery or people or better processes, which then get you to the next level, which then get you to the next level. So again, it comes down with starting with what you have uh, and then amping it up. And so your time management will also evolve or should evolve based upon that where you keep dealing with the bigger issues, the bigger issues, the bigger issues as you progress so that that is what you end up spending all your time on versus minutia. You know, also the ability to say no is extremely powerful, you know. The fact of the matter is you've heard the term, the buck stops with you. Well, the clock stops with you also, assuming it's your deal. You know, you determine everything when it comes to the clock and deadlines and you name it. So you're the one in control. Interesting. Hmm. But I also fundamentally believe in pushing, Jake. I don't believe in sitting I, back. So I don't yeah. want that to come across the wrong way. <laughs> I know. I, I, it's just something I've been thinking about. And there's certain things, like, obviously, you need to get certain things out at a certain time. Um, and I'm also a pusher. I think there's type A and type B personality. I think type A is the ones that are really aggressive go-getters and they want to get a lot of things done. Um, I think I would fall, maybe I would assume that you would also fall into that category as well. Um, another question I wanted to ask is yeah, about sure. entrepreneurship. Um, when have you found, or when you when you take a look at somebody, when do you know like, they should really like reconsider what they're doing here. What, what should people be thinking about? If they, um, if they start, they're an entrepreneur. If they don't start, they're not. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. For real. And, and here's the thing. Once you start, I, I think of it like a roller coaster ride. The second that you decide to push the go button on the roller coaster ride, the only person that can stop it is you. And so if you stop it, you weren't an entrepreneur. You were somebody that was trying to get it, didn't come easy, call it a day, and it wasn't built for you. If you're an entrepreneur, you don't stop the ride. It doesn't matter because it's not going to kill you, 
all right? The ride is not going to kill you. It may make you throw up. It may make you feel crappy. It may end up being in the rain or the snow. It may get stuck up on the hill or something like that for a period of time, but it's not going to kill you. So, you know, in terms of having a certain high threshold, I don't want to say for pain, uh, but in a way it's that, but it's really more for delayed gratification. If you have the ability to delay gratification, you'll typically be a great entrepreneur. Just mm -hmm. don't stop. That's the only key to business. Just don't stop. That is great advice right there. That's really good advice. Um, that leads to this question. Do you think you'll ever retire? Nah. And fundamentally for a couple of reasons, I saw some stat years ago that said something like a, a huge portion of men that end up retiring die within two years of the retirement date. So the last thing I wish to do is put a 700 day clock on my life. Uh, but also in terms of just creating, you know, I fundamentally believe in leaving life empty. You know, I may have said that to you before, but I really yeah, do. Yeah. I fundamentally believe in pushing it uh, as far as you can humanly take it. I think that's why we're here uh, in whatever capacity that you live. Uh, you know, I'm not here for necessarily, oh, I get to experience whatever in life and do this. I'm here to create. I'm here to go ahead and create businesses. I'm here to go ahead and give birth to as many people as possible in terms of that way <laughs> and help out as many people as possible that I can in terms of the business side. That's what I'm here for. Do you have a bucket list? No, I really don't. I, I don't do that at all. Because here's the thing. So I, how, how will you know? How will you know if, if life is empty? Um, I, how, do, how would you know? I think the day I die is pretty much when my tank is empty. I mean, it's one of those things where I'm not advocating, hey, don't take vacation. Don't get rest. Don't do this. For me, I do certain things that's right for me. All right. I think people, again, they shouldn't be modeling themselves necessarily after others that are extreme cases. But what I think they should do is push themselves to the limit to find out how far they can go. You know, I'm sitting here with a leg injury uh, from last Wednesday because I'm running hill sprints. And I sit on that last uh, hill sprint. I go, I'm leaving nothing out there today. Nothing. And guess what? I didn't just leave nothing. I went negative. I overdrew the account. So now I know what I can and can't do with running hill sprints. Well, I don't advocate doing that, but you know, I've had it where I've worked before and some of my best ideas and things have happened from being, you know, in the in the furnace is what I call it, being it where you have a bunch of crap happening, you know, in a huge way and having the negativity that bad stuff happen. That's where the good stuff happens is when the bad stuff happens. So you've got to push, push, push in order for that to happen. You don't find it just waking up and saying, oh, everything just came to me one day. It doesn't work that way. At least not for me. Do you think you found like the, the proper balance in, in your life in terms, I, I think the, like the generic term would be work-life balance? Oh, God, no. I don't think it exists. And, and I know that may be a contrarian thing. I don't think it exists. Uh, I love my kids to death. I'm glad that I get to spend all this time with them with COVID-19 and everything else. But there's so much in a way, I think, with the work-life balance that that's something that a lot of people hold out as something to, be, to go after. I'm a contrarian. I, I fundamentally believe that if you like doing something, take it to the extreme. If you get tired, come back to it after a little bit of rest and relaxation if you need it. But with business, I don't get fatigued with it typically. I get burnout every now and then, once or twice a year for a couple days, uh, but that's it. And I'm not sitting here working you know, 21 hours a day and having no family time, but I don't think the perfect work balance, uh, work uh, whatever the hell life balance exists. I think it's a, it's a nice phrase. I don't think it really happens out there. Interesting. Interesting. And I saw, I saw something that you had posted, or maybe we had a conversation about it, but you take these creative breaks and you do, is it an opposite day or a week? 
where sure. you just do everything oppositely. What, can you talk to us about that and like what, what's the rationale behind it and has it been effective? Oh yeah, definitely. Think of it this way. We all get stuck in patterns. So all it is is a purposeful breaking of the pattern in whatever way you can with a work work side. So, you know, for example, there are certain people I just wouldn't take meetings from typically, all right? I know they're typically pitching a certain way or whatever it may be, and it may not necessarily be a fit. I would take them, their meetings, just to hear them out and see what happens. Uh, there's other people that you, uh, like with your list and creation, that would be considered top priority. I would instantly put them on the back burner and not to talk to them under any condition whatsoever, even if they're running into emergencies during opposite week, all right? Just because it makes things change and grow in a different way. I, I even went ahead and had, you know, my ACDC hat on during meetings. I took meetings in my garage uh, as I was even lifting and working out, which I, I definitely say don't do. That doesn't work uh, in terms of the multitasking. But when you try, you know, opposite, opposite week, the point is just to bring in everything that you would normally say no to, you say yes to. And everything they normally say yes to, you say no to, short of, you know, really the golden rule and eating a bunch of junk food, you know. So everything else is on the table with opposite week, just to give your mind a break, just to give you a different perspective, just to see if you are missing something uh, with your patterns of thought and patterns of behavior. It breaks through the ice in certain ways. Interesting. Well, I have one final question for you. Sure. But before I ask that question, I want to give you you the floor um, to chat about really anything that you you want to you want to say. So the, the majority of the people that listen to this are college students. Um, I'm a student at the University of Minnesota, so the majority of them are other students at the University of Minnesota or just people that I've met throughout my life. Um, so if, if you could say anything to somebody that wants to become or is, is in the process of becoming an entrepreneur in the early stages of starting their company, um, what would you tell them? I tell them two uh, of my deal rules, deal rule 28 and deal rule 29. Deal rule 28 is trust the process. What I mean by that is once you start the process of creation, of entrepreneurship, of whatever it may be, kind of like what I spoke about earlier, that's a roller coaster. The only person that can stop it is you. If you trust the process, you will get to where you want to go. It may not be the way you thought about it. It may not be, have been the initial assumptions, but you will get there eventually so long as you don't stop. That's number one. Number two is deal rule 29. I am enough. And that's where I think many people run into issues. They fundamentally think of themselves as imposters or they don't think they have enough skill set or, hey, there's got to be something more to it that uh, conditions I must meet as a person to be a successful entrepreneur. Bullshit. The fact of the matter is you are enough. Trust the process. I am enough. That'll get you to wherever you need to go. That's it. That's all you need to know. Hmm. Hard stop. What are your deal rules? I, I'm just curious. What, what is, is this like a list of, of, of rules that you have for yourself, like principles? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a bunch of deal rules. I think I'm up to 38 or 39 right now. I, I put a video out there. Uh, I think it's on, it's on my post on LinkedIn and also on the Gusher YouTube channel. But I cover all the deal rules pretty quickly. I'll send you a copy. Cool. I'll, I'll, I'll take a look at it. Okay. Uh, final question for you. It's about marketing. Uh, white space. What's one thing out there in the world right now that is being is, is totally underutilized by companies that they should be doing in terms of marketing their product and selling it? Asynchronous video messaging. 
All right, meaning that even the way you and I met, we dealt with asynchronous video messaging. I sent you a video message after you reached out to me and initiated on this side that relationship in a different way. You said, hey, Chris, I'd like to talk to you, blah, blah, blah. How did I reply back to you, Jake? It was a video message. Right, and when I did that video, when I did that, hold up, when I did that video message, in terms of your knowledge or feeling that you made a connection or about me, on a scale of one to 10, where let's say one is an email and 10 is I'm your best friend, where did that fall? There's no right or wrong answer. We've only known each other for a week, but I I feel like we're closer to being best friends. <laughs> I would say I would say I was I was probably at an eight. Right, I would, exactly. I would be over a seven. Over a seven. Right, right. My point is, typically people would say at least a five, six, seven, depending. Okay. The reason is when you send video messages versus any other form of communication in the initial stages. Okay. At this stage in terms of the evolution of communication, it's considered uh, much better because you're resonating with the person. You're making it customized. You're showing that you're human. And when, with any type of business, I don't care what it is, asynchronous video messaging, video messaging direct, not some generic message, is the way to go to go ahead and penetrate, to be able to establish the relationships, and definitely be able to get sales on larger scale sales or multi-step sales. It is the only way to go. I wouldn't waste my time on email. I really don't email at all anymore. All right, I either do live uh, video like what we're doing or I do asynchronous video messaging. That's it. I don't even do phone calls anymore because it's so effective. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I just had a, I had a conversation with um, a guy, the founder of, of SalesReach. I don't know if you've ever heard of that company, but they, they take it to another level with, with the asynchronous, asynchronous messaging. They um, deal with B2B companies and it, it's super, the, the product that they, they have is super interesting. They basically create an entire web page. In addition yeah. to having that video, the, the video is embedded in a web page. And it, I, I reached out to Josh to ask if he'd come on the podcast and he sent me like within two minutes, he sent me a web page fully customized with all of my information on right. it, all of his information on it. It's insane. I was like, <laughs> well, I, first thing I said, it was like, that was, I was like, well, that's impressive. Right. And, and what he did is he did mass customization on a certain level with that personal touch on video. And suddenly it makes this thing where, oh my God, you did your homework on me. Oh my gosh, you actually went ahead and went the extra step. Oh my gosh, not even now more than that, but I feel I know the person because they're a real person that you can actually see and hear and you see their body language, which is so damn important. And I think people are missing that. I mean, I get literally hundreds of contact requests a day from LinkedIn and they're all the same. Hey, I'd like to connect with you for blah, 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 blah. You know, the exact same message. And it's like they're, they're bots in a some way and I'm sure some of them are, but very rare does anyone actually send a video message that you know who they are as a reason to connect. And I just think it's completely underutilized. Yeah. Question, why did you respond to me? Uh, because you asked for help in a certain way, and I fundamentally believe that's really the lubricant of life. I fundamentally believe that we should be helping people in whatever we can and utilizing our capacity. I call it zealoting, all right? If I'm having a dead time out there for whatever reason, like let's say momentum's down, I go out and I zeal it. That doesn't mean that I go ahead and help everybody exclusively with business. It means I help them in whatever way I possibly can at that point in time with whatever methodology I can. So maybe it's a handoff. Maybe it's just a smile. Maybe it's buying somebody a cup of coffee. Maybe it's replying back to somebody that's asking for help on what they're creating there. And if I can help and do it and bring value to somebody, I do it.
because it always comes back tenfold. Awesome. Well, Chris, thank you for taking the time to sit down with me today. Yeah, my I'm, very, I'm very glad you responded because this has been a hell of a conversation. Um, I think we, we asked a lot of different questions and there's a lot of meat on the bone in this conversation. Definitely. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was super dense. So I appreciate you coming on um, and I hope you have a great rest of your week. Uh, my pleasure. If I can ever do anything, reach out and let me know. Alrighty, bud. Sounds great. Thanks, Chris. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Hey there, thanks for listening to today's episode. Um, I hope you're having a great week so far. I was taking a look at the analytics on these things and probably, let me look here. It says 67% of the people are right about my age. I'm assuming that's people that I know. But fun fact, 5% of the people are 60 plus. So shout out to everybody's grandma and grandpa for listening in on a weekly basis here. I'm just kidding, by the way. Um, I hope you're all doing super well, and I hope you have a great rest of your week, and I'll see you next time.